conditions Not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians Cause they owned by special interest groups that fund their campaign That's why you hear the same old things they claim but change never came It's a dirty game maintained by rain for capital gain But my people getting tired of the pain and the shame Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio I'm your host, Mickey Huff On today's program, we welcome Dr. Aaron Good. He has a three-part review of Adam Curtis's latest film. We'll talk about deepfake politics, historiography of the Cold War, the clandestine state, and political economy of U.S. hegemony. Stay tuned for an hour about untold histories. Welcome back to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we welcome back to the show Dr. Aaron Good, a former political organizer. He has a PhD in political science from Temple University. His dissertation, American Exception, Hegemony and the Tripartite State, examined the state elite criminality and U.S. hegemony was an expansion of previously published work, American Exception, Hegemony, and the Dissimulation of the State. Aaron Good has been on the program before and has attended Project Censored conferences and panels. He also has written a three-part series, a review of Adam Curtis, the BBC, Adam Curtis's latest documentary, eight hours worth, and Aaron Good's going to talk about this. And some of you may be wondering, well, why are we having a conversation about this Adam Curtis documentary. The articles are titled Deepfake Politics, Getting Adam Curtis Out of Your Head. Part two, Deepfake Politics, The Prankster, The Prosecutor, and The Parapolitical. And the third, Deepfake Politics, Empire, and the Criminalization of the State. All of these pieces, by the way, are published at kennedysandking.com. So you can read these extremely detailed deep dives. Aaron Good has done a really fantastic part. That's why I mentioned that this is really a deep historiography of the Cold War, the clandestine state, and political economy of U.S. hegemony. So it's going to be a really fascinating conversation. Aaron is an extremely knowledgeable person. He's also working on a number of other issues related to the Kennedy assassination and other things, and I'm sure he'll bring some of that up. But Aaron Good, welcome back to the Project Censored show. Thank you, Mickey. It's great to be back here with you. It's always good to catch up with you. And I'm curious, so what exactly got you into this eight-hour documentary about Adam Curtis? First of all, could you tell people a little bit about that, about Curtis? Some folks may remember Curtis from the Project Censored show because of the Century of Self, where he talks about Eddie Bernays. That's a four-part series, but he talks about Bernays in the early part of that series about the birth of public relations and propaganda. So could you tell us a little bit about Curtis and your angle of his latest work? Aaron Good. Sure. Curtis is a very interesting guy. And when I first started to look as an adult more into deep politics, uh, which I did sort of intermittently, but around 2004, I saw The Power of Nightmares. And I thought that it was very interesting because it did belie a lot of the prevailing myths about Al-Qaeda and the war on terror and so on. 
Now, I, I didn't know as much as I know now when I saw that. And I, I think if I went back, I would find many, many omissions, including the way that he uh, ignores the use of these Al-Qaeda types after the Cold War ended. And he's very credulous about Al-Qaeda in, in some ways. But he was still doing really interesting work. And the, the Century of the Self also has a lot of good information about Bernays and so on. But, it, you know, the more that I looked at his documentaries, the more it seemed that he left out or altered some things that reflected the way that power really operates at the top. And so when I saw this new documentary that he was working on, I thought it sounded interesting because, you know, it deals with some heavy themes about the decline of U.S. hegemony and these crises that we face, systemic crises and, and can't do much about, and how we got to this point. And so I was interested to see what he would do, but I'd already sort of been wise to his tricks. And I also was further intrigued by uh, the fact that he was looking into the Kennedy assassination, in particular, Carrie Thornley, who's a very strange character. So I contacted Jim DiEugenio, or I mentioned it in passing to him in another email. Jim DiEugenio runs Kennedy's and King. He's also the co-creator of Oliver Stone's new documentary, a version of it was just shown at the Cannes Film Festival. The two-hour version is called JFK Revisited, and then the four-hour version is Destiny Betrayed. I met Jim in person when I went out to L.A. to be interviewed for that film, and I believe that I appear in the four-hour one, probably not the two-hour cut. I haven't seen either of them yet, though. But I was talking to Jim about this. He asked me if I would write a review of the Curtis thing, and I thought, that's a big undertaking because it's eight hours long, and then the material, there's so much there that, it would be hard to pick what I should focus on. But Jim pretty much invented this genre where you review something that is long and kind of tedious and that you'd probably be better off not consuming in the first place. And then writing a review that sort of stands on its own. And that's what he did for Vincent Bugliosi's very long, perhaps ghostwritten by people at Langley uh, in part, you know, who knows, because the book is like as big as a phone book for like Manhattan or something. And there's CD-ROMs that make it like three times as long. Jim went through the entire thing and he wrote a review and he turned that review into a book that is one of the best books on the Kennedy assassination. Because just by debunking the mistakes of this long work, you can actually present something that is sort of what the work could have been if it were done by somebody who, who was more of an honest broker. So I thought, okay, I'm not going to do what he did and make a book, but I'm going to go through this series, watch the eight hours, take notes on it all with timestamps, and then pick it apart because so much of it overlaps or is, is related to uh, things that I wrote about in my dissertation, which I spent years and years researching and, and writing. And so I was the perfect guy to do it. I had a job teaching at the time and had other projects, but I managed to fit it in over the course of a few months. And I'm happy with the way that it, that it turned out. And, and Jim and the other people that are uh, familiar with the site have appreciated it as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to talk about it because the subject matter that he deals with is much more interesting and important than the film itself, which is pretty much flawed. You start out by talking about Curtis as a skilled filmmaker with a very unique style, you know, maybe a cliche as you, you, you state now. And it's interesting too, that Curtis, for many Curtis sometimes appears to be a left liberal, a progressive sites left um, people, David Graeber, for instance, as you point out, but what did you find out more about Curtis, about his ideology and how that impacts the way he frames 
and omits information in these kinds of projects. Aaron Good. I think that he is critical of power in a generic sense and that that allows him to appear as someone who's politically on the left. And there are leftists who like him or people that are you know, liberal left and so on. But when he talks about his own politics, he says that he's not on the left, that some of his ideas have a neoconservative bent almost. And I think that he's in some ways a kind of anarchist in that he is skeptical, you know, has a skeptical posture towards power. But he is, because of his anti-leftism, he's not really able to identify the way that these institutions, these problematic institutions function, that all of the quirks and strange perverse outcomes that they generate and ideas that they adopt with bad consequences that the common thread between them is that these are things that are advantageous to class of people that have uh, the most power in society and can really dominate institutions by employing, you know, a set of bureaucrats and managers at the middle levels of power who accept certain ideas and, and practices and operate on that basis. And so he, he ends up really focusing on these middle layers of power or these strange people whose ideas get adopted without pointing out what they're accomplishing and how much wealth and power that they are concentrating ever upwards, which has really been the story of the U.S., especially since the 70s. But really, you can almost look at the whole post-war era as, as being an example of uh, increasing wealth and political power being concentrated at the top and a decline of democracy in any meaningful sense. Well, Aaron Good, you talk in the first of the three-part series review. Again, that's available at kennedysandking.com. You talk about history as his story, and you talk about C. Wright Mills and two ideal types of history. Can you unpack some of that and, and relate it to what, what you're discussing in the series? C. Wright Mills wrote in the 50s, and he was grappling with the fact, and, and he was writing, he wrote The Power Elite in 1956, and he was trying to grapple with the enormous power that the U.S. had at that time, you know, which is around 10 years after the end of World War II. And no, no, no country in the world had been as powerful in absolute and relative terms as the United States. Enormous manufacturing, a monopoly on the nuclear bomb for a, a few years anyway, and a, a military that was more powerful than anyone else combined. Its only competitor, Russia, you know, the Soviet Union, had just lost 26 Point six million people in World War II. And, and it wasn't like there were good times in Russia before that. And so the U.S. was just totally peerless on the world stage. And increasingly, he identified three pillars of this power structure of the U.S., the, the military, the political system, and big business. And he saw them as almost interchangeable at the top and really working to dominate politics and society in a top-down way among a very narrow circle of people when it came down to it in a, in a very narrow strata of corporate wealth that was all being further entrenched by virtue of this permanent wartime economy that was privately incorporated. Which so, Eisenhower later warned about. Right? Yeah, and, <laughs> and Eisenhower warned about that because his speechwriter was actually a political science professor, but it's, all, it's certain that he was influenced by C. Wright Mills. So C. Wright Mills really is the person who identified, I think, most what we would come to know as the military industrial complex. And what he was what what he was talking about with the ideal types of history, he was saying that there are those who look at history as just all drift and that the the structures of society are 
so overdetermining that history just unfolds on the basis of these factors that are really beyond the influence of any individuals. He disregarded that, saying that, you know, elites in certain circumstances have more or less power based on the power that they command through the organizations that they dominate and institutions they dominate. But then he contrasted this view of history as drift with history as conspiracy, which is the the opposite view, which sees all historical events as being the result of the manipulations of a certain set of villains or heroes, pick, take your pick. And he was trying to reconcile these two things. So, you, you, you know, that you need to look at the class structure of a society and the, the power that they command, the elites of a society command and how cohesive a set of elites are. But by doing that, you see that they have power and that there are people who have agency and that the job of social scientists in the world, the civilization that he was writing in, should be to try to figure out where the responsibility lies and what the fault lines are among elite circles and how they might define the possibilities for our time. His approach had a lot to recommend it, but I think it was a threat in a way. And so he, the most famous social scientist of his day, he um, wanted to do a follow-up to the power elite and the Ford Foundation wouldn't let him do it. They wouldn't fund him, this most prominent social scientist in the country. We find out later that Ford Foundation was CIA cut out, among other things. And it represents, even on a bigger sense, the foundations and their role in determining the direction of scholarship in America. I did not get any foundation funding for my dissertation. As a result, (laughs) it took longer to write it, but I was able to write something that I thought was important dealing with U.S. hegemony and the criminality of the state. So Curtis he does not really take Mills to heart. He doesn't look at the power and the intentionality of the people at the top of the U.S. power structure. He's writing about the U.S. and Britain both, but they kind of become intertwined in many ways, and Britain becomes America's tag-along buddy for most of the post-war era. So Curtis doesn't want to look at the power elite as being as cohesive and as influential as they are in determining the course of U.S. history and and history since the end of World War II because the U.S. is such a powerful actor. He's an anti-Mills in many ways. I'd like to remind you all you're tuned to the Project Censored show. I'm host Mickey Huff. We are speaking with Aaron Good. We're talking about a lengthy, in-depth, three-part review that he's published at kennedysandking.com about Adam Curtis's latest BBC documentary, The Topic of these reviews is on deep historiography of the Cold War, the clandestine state, and political economy of U.S. hegemony. We'll continue our conversation with Aaron Good after this brief musical break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we welcome political scientist Aaron Good. He received a PhD in political science from Temple University. His dissertation, American Exception, Hegemony in the Tripartite State. Today, we're talking about a lengthy three-part review that Aaron Good did at kennedysandking.com on deep fake politics. It looks at historiography, the Cold War, the clandestine state, and the political economy of U.S. hegemony as it reviews the eight-hour film from Adam Curtis, Can't Get You Out of My Head. So this is actually an opportunity to have our listeners check out some of the work of Adam Curtis, if you have not already, and take a look at the very detailed critique, which I think is a very important missing part. Much of what Aaron Good talks about is our untold history. It's been widely censored, particularly in the West, and films like Curtis's do a real disservice to people who are really trying to unpack many of these complicated issues. And before the break, Aaron Good, you were talking about C. Wright Mills, you were talking about uh, different trajectories of history, and of course one of the things that comes up anytime you talk about the intersections of politics and economics, there seems to be a dismissal that it's based on conspiracy or conspiratorial thinking or conspiracy theory as a pejorative way to dismiss investigating these types of subjects and topics. However, as you yourself know, with your research, you mentioned earlier the Ford Foundation and not funding Mills um, and joked about they're not funding your dissertation. But there have been really important works done, particularly on the Council of Foreign Relations, Lawrence Shoup, Peter Phillips, giants very much in the vein of C. Wright Mills. And in your review, you do go into some of those institutions, historic, and you use it through the frame of what Curtis looks at as the so-called American century. Could you talk a little bit about that? The American century is the term given to post-war United States hegemony over the international political economy. It was coined by uh, Henry Luce, who was part of the Council on Foreign Relations, where he comes out to advocate for America you know, during World War II, entering the war, and then afterwards being in a position of power to establish what would be an American century, a century in which American values are reigning over the world and the world becomes a better, freer place, and it's all wrapped in language of freedom and liberty, and so on, although occasionally he kind of slips up and does start talking about how much money there is to be made in Asia in one passage. And this is a guy, Henry Luce, he also ran Fortune magazine, he ran Time and Life magazine, and he was the sort of PR man for the Council on Foreign Relations, which was essentially the think tank, the foreign policy think tank of Wall Street, funded with Rockefeller money, Morgan money, and dominated around this era by Rockefellers and their acolytes like the Dulleses. So this was the hive mind of the U.S. empire, and it was a vision of what the U.S. should become after the war, which was opposed by FDR's vice president, Henry Wallace, who instead called for a century of the common man. And I think Wallace was representative of the more progressive forces in the U.S. in the 20th century that had evolved out of the, the populist era and the progressive era and the New Deal era. And for a time in the U.S., it's, it's astounding that Henry Wallace could have been vice president with his progressive views. And also that you would have had somebody like Charles Beard as the head of the American Historical Association and the head of the American Political Science Association, which has never been done by anybody else, I, I believe. There were more institutionalized progressive forces in the United States there was something substantive about them. It wasn't just 
what we see as the liberal now, which is the left side of the right wing that reigns over everything. This was a time when things could have gone in a different way, but those progressive forces get crushed and the U.S. goes for a kind of covert empire. Let's pause on that. I certainly wanted to give a shout out to historian Peter Kuznick, along with Oliver Stone, and you do this in your review, but Kuznick, a frequent guest on the program here in Untold History, really tells that story of Henry Wallace, that untold story, and the significance of what happened when Truman was put in the vice presidency, and of course the rest, as they say, is history. But please continue, Aaron Good, on this different direction that comes out with Henry Luce, the CFR, Truman, etc. Kuznick really, as you say, did more to bring back Henry Wallace into the consciousness of historians and, and Americans than anyone. He's actually mentioned more in Eric Foner's text, which is really very good for a high school textbook. And he has more on Henry Wallace and the century of the common man. And I think that's definitely in response to Peter Kuznick's and Oliver Stone's work on, on Henry Wallace. So he loses out, of course, and we get the Cold War and the creation of the CIA and a system dominated by the U.S. and often controlled by corporate interests. And so when Henry Wallace is suggesting these other progressive things, he gets eventually red-baited and called a communist, and you have McCarthyism and these, the Red Scare before that, and it, which sort of blends into McCarthyism, right? The second Red Scare after the Soviets get the bomb and China falls and all that. And so that position gets pushed out of the American political spectrum. And I would argue that it it briefly re-enters under Kennedy this more enlightened foreign policy where America would try to share the benefits of technology to the former colonized world. This is what Wallace was calling for, and I really believe it's what Kennedy was calling for. And these positions were you know, defeated in different ways, in conspiratorial ways, I think, in both cases, whereas in the Wallace thing is very well documented that there was a conspiracy at the convention to put Harry Truman in there as the vice presidential candidate when FDR was very ill. And in the Kennedy case, of course, there's loads and loads of evidence that he was essentially murdered by the establishment or the deep state or whatever you want to call it. Well, Kennedy wasn't making any friends with his arch enemies, the Dulles brothers, as David Talbot points out in Devil's Chessboard. And also Kennedy had said that he wanted to splinter the CIA, what was splintered into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. He was coming to realize, I believe, that much of this Cold War was a cover and a, was serving as a pretext for neo-colonial policies. And so he worked with people that the CIA would get rid of. He wanted to work with Lumumba, who got assassinated before Kennedy came to office, probably hastily because Kennedy was coming to office. And that plunged the Congo into you know terrible uh, straits. He wanted to work with Sukarno. He wanted to work with Kwame Nkrumah. These are, were people that were anathema to these, the establishment, the CFR establishment, the Dulles brothers. So these guys have a lot of power. And their power is not so mysterious. It's not power exercised for power's sake. It's power exercised to the desires of a class of the corporate rich in the United States. So let's get into that because you do talk about monetary issues and you talk about the narrow way that Adam Curtis looks at it in his film and you unpack that. So what are exactly we talking here about the, these global monetary systems? Initially, you have up until the 70s, you had covert operations acting as a policing institution to punish countries that might try to do things like nationalize their resources. Because if they did, if they were successful, the international economy 
would allow them to develop and be prosperous potentially and allow resources to benefit people in the home countries. The monetary system eventually breaks down. And as a result, there's a number of strange events that shore up this new system that emerges in the 1970s. So for after World War II, the balance of payments between countries would be settled with dollars that were backed by gold. So $35 for an ounce of gold was the price. And the U.S. had so much gold after World War II that it could actually cover its balance of payments deficits like that if it needed to. But they spend so much on Vietnam that it wrecks this system. And eventually they say, eh. And eventually they say, no, we're just not going to give you the gold anymore. And the Treasury Secretary, who's uh, John Connolly, guy that got shot in the car with JFK, coincidentally. Under Nixon, he was the Treasury Secretary, and he said, it's our currency, but it's your problem. It's what in social science you call collective action problem. They're never able to work together to come up with another system. And so the outcome of this is that the U.S. is able to establish the dollar as the global reserve currency, but that there's no gold peg anymore. So they can create money that's as good as gold that everybody has to accept. And this is shored up in part through oil crises, which Curtis talks about. But there's so much evidence now that the oil crises were orchestrated by the U.S. I mean, you have the Saudi oil minister who said outright that the Shah told him, why are you against these price increases? Henry Kissinger is the one that wants them. Yeah, the Shah of Iran, because those were the two pillars of uh, oil production in the Middle East at the time, and they were both U.S. puppet states at the time. So what it does is all these dollars that central banks have you know, accumulated, they need to be spent on buying oil. And so the, the dollar then has a very useful function for these countries, getting them the oil that they need, which is for no legitimate reason, now four times higher in price. And so this gives the oil producing countries a bunch of money, but the US has already worked out deals with them that A, they're going to sell their oil in dollars, and B, they're going to recycle the money back into the US financial system. They're going to buy you know, some stock in companies, but also give a whole lot of money to Western banks. Sorry to interrupt, but this is just a classic example of how the CIA is used would be Mossadegh, the overthrow of the democratically elected head of Iran, the installation of the Shah. And then, of course, you have these ready-made allies, right? I mean, so just going to very specifically connect the dots here about how all these parts work together. So you see these covert operations in the past put in a loyal client regime in, in Iran. And then when the U.S. is in a pinch with this system that they created, that they went ahead and wrecked with Vietnam spending, that they have control over the oil that everyone needs. And so you think, okay, these two allies of the U.S. are really going to be like raising oil prices against the wishes of the, the U.S.? I mean, they essentially were serving at the pleasure of the U.S. in their own countries. So it's just easy to see the way that it worked out. And then other people who were actually party to this have come out and said, yeah, the U.S. was behind this. Aaron Good, you say in part of your review that Nixon created a new global monetary system, quote, by accident. That was what Curtis Curtis is saying. Where I'm going here, though, is eventually in your piece, you start talking too about Paul Volcker. Volcker is somebody that, and this is very interesting, and this is a whole other wormhole I don't want to go down, but Volcker was somebody that gets put in under Carter, but Nixon always refused to put him in as treasury secretary. So after this oil business is sorted out and, and all these petrodollars are in Western banks, they're loaned out to third world countries and for development. And if you know John Perkins and Confessions of an Economic Hitman, they always encourage them to borrow lots and lots of money that is siphoned off in corrupt ways, but also goes right back to US corporations to build infrastructure. And this puts countries into debt 
But the key thing that happened in the late 70s and the early 80s is Volcker is brought in and he raises interest rates a huge amount. And this wrecks the economies of the third world. And so these were things that were done on purpose and in ways that, you know, you, we can see what really happened and what the effects were. But Curtis just can't impart intentionality on these on these actors. And he, he has to say, oh, by accident, Nixon had created this system. Well, it wasn't by accident. And the first guy to write about it was Michael Hudson. And he was working for the Hudson Institute, no relation at the time. And he got commissioned by the Pentagon, I believe, to write about what was happening with this new system. And he became the most highly sought after lecturer at that time or a guest speaker to talk about these issues because he had explained how the U.S. had created this new system that later gets termed super imperialism because they managed to dominate the world economy from their position as a debtor. And this, is, this was done not by accident. It, it really empowered the already most powerful forces in, at the top of the U.S. capitalist system. And so why would you think that these things are accidental when they weren't? So it's a Curtis sleight of hand is one of the, one of the documentary styles, baiting and switching leaving out key information. We're going to get into some of those because by the time we get to the third part of your review, you start analyzing more of how the truth can be muddled. And you talk about how Curtis has a tendency to, quote, dissemble when dealing with crucial aspects of state criminality, the dual state, geopolitics, Western imperialism, and the West adversaries, which again are all very key and important parts of the story. And your three-part review at kennedysandking.com, Aaron Good, really do follow this very deeply. In fact, we have to take a break right now. I wanted to remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Project Censored Show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're speaking to political scientist Aaron Good about his three-part review, Deep Fake Politics. We're talking about historiography, the Cold War, the clandestine state, and the political economy of U.S. hegemony. We'll be back and continue that conversation with Aaron Good after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we welcome Aaron Good, former political organizer with a PhD in political science from Temple University. He's recently authored a three-part review of BBC filmmaker Adam Curtis's film, Can't Get You Out of My Head. Good wrote a three-part review for KennedysandKing.com, Deep Fake Politics. And it looks at historiography, the Cold War, the clandestine state, the political economy of U.S. hegemony, and dissects the propaganda from Adam Curtis's latest film. 
So in many ways, we're unpacking this history, and it's really a big part of our untold histories as far as U.S. hegemony and imperialism go. Aaron Good, before the break, you were getting into a lot of details. You refer to Curtis's, quote, financial obscurantism. And then in your next piece, you start talking a little bit more about Curtis's take on conspiracy theories, but then you go into detail about what he omits, distorts, and cherry picks in many ways. So could you get into some of the details here? What exactly is Curtis doing with the conspiracy theory label here, and how is he framing the Kennedy era? Well, he's not a vulgar anti-conspiracy guy. He's not someone who says there are no conspiracies. He's not Karl Popper, and he covers conspiracies, and he says the real-world conspiracies are getting mixed up with the made-up conspiracies. You know, the ultimate conspiracy that hangs over the 50s and 60s, 70s, is the assassination of President Kennedy and the rest of the 60s assassinations as well, but especially the Kennedy assassination, is just something that looms large. And for some reason, he brings it up. I don't know why he brings it up, because he dismisses it. But the, char- the character that he focuses on is Carrie Thornley, who is a very bizarre character and someone who, if, if you study his actions over the years, he seems to pretty clearly to have been a right-wing intelligence operative of some kind, some sort of operative within elements of the, the deep state, these private entities, but that are working on behalf of intelligence in New Orleans, and that his job is to help to frame Oswald. He wrote a book about Oswald while he was in the military, and he was hanging around in New Orleans associating with the same people that come up in Oliver Stone's JFK. He was even identified as being the person who helped Oswald print up those Fair Play for Cuba flyers. Those episodes are depicted, except not with Carrie Thornley, but depicted in Oliver Stone's JFK. And so what does Curtis do with this guy? Well, he he says Garrison never found any conspiracy, which is not true. He actually convinced most of the jury that there was a conspiracy, just there wasn't enough to convict Clay Shaw, in part because Clay Shaw perjured himself, which we now know. But he also goes into what Thornley did later in life, which was he was part of Operation Mind F. This Operation Mind F was using people at like Playboy magazine and elsewhere to put out these stupid conspiracy theories about how everything was really controlled by the Bavarian Illuminati. And, you know, this is around the same time that the CIA is putting out to its international, you know, journalist assets, talking points on how to deal with the Kennedy assassination. So this is around the time that the CIA, we know the CIA was discrediting conspiracy theorists. You've got this Thornley guy who's doing the same sort of thing. He is making it seem like people who think that official stories are lies, you know, to cover up some sort of covert action or clandestine apparatus, that those people are crazy. And that the, you know, the idea that the Bavarian Illuminati is behind everything is so absurd that it would somehow discredit conspiracy theories in general and make people accept official sources. Straw person, guilt by association, ad hominem attacking. I mean, all these kinds of tactics that go on to this very day, which is why this part of our history is so instrumental. And I think it's really important that you're unpacking it right now. Thornley had no source of income, for example. And and he had these two houses when Garrison was trying to chase him down. He arranged to be able to meet at NASA, which was the same place where a lot of the people that worked at the Riley Coffee Company with Oswald in New Orleans, they found employment at NASA. So Thornley, just like Oswald, his actions are so bizarre 
until you think that there's an intelligence angle, and then they all make sense in different ways. This is something that Curtis doesn't really acknowledge, but he finally does say that even Thornley came to think that he was somehow part of some conspiracy. And even that story is something that comes about in the mid-70s when they were reinvestigating things. And, and Thornley's new conspiracy theory was itself pretty obviously a disinformation plot. But this is, again, something Curtis doesn't really get into. It's sort of made to deride people who would look at the Kennedy assassination. But the Kennedy assassination and the motives for it and the consequences for it would be very useful to illuminate the way that power has operated in the U.S. and the things that you can and cannot do in this kind of a system, but Curtis won't go there. So he really does a disservice with his stuff on the Kennedy assassination. Even the Independent, the U.K. Independent, just wrote a review of Oliver Stone's new JFK documentary, and the guy says, you know, whatever you think of Stone, even his biggest detractors would have to say that the evidence he presents is overwhelming and you would have to be a flat earther to believe that Oswald acted alone in killing Kennedy. So I guess Curtis does not want to acknowledge this. So he just has a silly diversion here. He's the perfect straw person then, the perfect foil to build up and tear down for Curtis in that regard, which is a brilliant propaganda move, furthering official narrative on this. But you clearly point out, had Curtis even bothered reading David Talbot's brother's you mentioned numerous sources that are readily available to people who you would think if they're researching this topic, they would have to know about these sources. So this is why you're suggesting that Curtis is definitely cherry picking things to fit a narrative. And this is kind of a, a spoiler, but I think it's going to be it's something that's present throughout the, the review or that's something that you should come away with is that if you know, the BBC is state media in Britain. It's supposed to be publicly run, but we know how they cover things like the run-up to the Iraq war, etc. I guess if Curtis wrote the piece that he should or, or wrote the script that he should to cover this kind of material, there's just no way it would be on the BBC. As John Pilger pointed out in many of his documentaries, including The War You Don't See, which is a devastating takedown of BBC bias, particularly as it relates to Palestine, among other topics. But you rightly point out, Aaron Good, the Western press on the run-up to the Iraq war was just a parade of propaganda officials and falsehoods, known falsehoods that are pushed forward. So these major, quote, news outlets, whether state media or corporate media, they're not just glued to the official narrative. They have a very specific role in crafting that narrative. What would you say about that, Aaron Good? Yeah, this is one of the big problems of our so-called free press and our liberal democratic institutions, that you have this idea in sort of liberal democratic theory that the, the media have a watchdog role and they do their best to inform the public and they're adversarial to power. And then the marketplace of ideas will allow the good ideas and the good critiques and the good journalism to win out. And it, that just doesn't seem to be the way it has unfolded in the U.S. It's even more consolidated and top-down now. And some of the consensus positions that they arrive at become increasingly absurd. The run-up to the Iraq war was an obvious example. But even the core allegations of Russiagate have been widely debunked and disproven as much as you can prove a negative. Increasingly, we are just gaslighted in a particular way by the corporate hive mind. And it's, I guess, not surprising when you look at how it's five or six corporations that control almost all the media, and then three financial firms like BlackRock, State Street, 
and Vanguard, right, that have huge interests in all of these corporate entities as well. And power is really concentrated in a small number of people in the media and elsewhere, as you know, your colleague and, and, our, and our friend Peter Phillips points out in Giants, that with this system of concentrated power in, in the West and, and ownership of, of the media and, and finance, it's a recipe for just creating a totalitarian top-down system of, of media with the guise of a free press and free speech. A soft cage. That's part of going back through Chomsky and the necessary illusions he and Herman had brought up and, and discussed that the reason that a lot of these kinds of stories stick so well in the minds of people in the American public is that we're really kind of trained to accept these exceptionalist narratives from an early age. You, know, you go back to the beginning of the Republic, quote unquote, people like Parson Weems, early historians and chroniclers saying the job of historians in the United States is to create mythology, to create larger than life figures so that there's something to build the frame of this propaganda around. In many cases, Aaron Good, it seems like Adam Curtis is continuing in that vein. Yeah, and he does it in a very unique way. If you want to start from the assumption that this is in some way a kind of propaganda, then you want to understand what its function is going to be. And to me, it seems that it is for sophisticated audiences that do recognize that there are big problems with the prevailing order. And so he looks at certain aspects of these problems that are pretty clear. And yet he also spends a lot of energy and time demonizing and caricaturing the enemies of this particular order, which by now are this emerging Eurasian alliance between China and Russia and the threat that they pose to U.S. hegemony. And he doesn't present this in his work. So he actually focuses a lot on how bad they are and how nihilistic and terrible they are. And he downplays all of their accomplishments, which are mixed as any place. But still, you would walk away from it thinking that, gosh, some of our bureaucrats and institutions are kind of corrupt and they have ideas that don't really work. And so we have problems we can't solve. But Russia and China are really, really bad. And so what to do? It, it induces a kind of paralysis, I think. That seems to be a good propaganda function in a way. He's not turning people into cheerleaders for Wall Street, City of London. Yeah, he is befuddling and neutralizing what could be an anti-establishment consensus with this sort of filmmaking. Well, I'd like to remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Our guest for today, for the hour, is Dr. Aaron Good, political scientist. We're talking about a three-part series that he has published at kennedysandking.com on deepfake politics. It's a review of the BBC's Adam Curtis' latest documentary. And what the three-part reviews really turn out to be is historiography of the Cold War, the clandestine state, and political economy of U.S. hegemony. We're going to continue our conversation with Aaron Good and complete the program after this brief musical break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In the final segment of today's program, we're going to continue our conversation with Aaron Good, former political organizer with a PhD in political science from Temple University. His dissertation, American Exception, Hegemony and the Tripartite State. On today's program, we're talking about a three-part series that he wrote for KennedysandKing.com. You can see the series there called Deep Fake Politics, Getting Adam Curtis Out of Your Head, the second part, The Prankster, The Prosecutor, and The Parapolitical, and the final part, Empire and the Criminalization of the State. Now, before the break, Aaron Good, we were talking about film as propaganda, documentary as propaganda. For some that may be less familiar with people like Adam Curtis, where would you put him on a comparison chart with somebody in the U.S. that's widely known through PBS, Ken Burns? Well, I will have to say that I prefer him to Ken Burns. I cannot suffer Ken Burns talking about anything with any political implications. I like the baseball stuff. I must confess to being a baseball fan. But his things on politics, the Vietnam War documentary that he did, which demonizes the anti-war movement, was not very good, even though it's technically put together well in terms of his filmmaking technique. And I find it inexcusable that he did not interview Dan Ellsberg. There's nobody alive who would be more crucial to talk about if you're going to talk about the Vietnam War. And the fact that he did not interview him or request to interview him to me says that he had a propaganda vision that he wanted front and center in this in that whole documentary. I think that Curtis is, is more clever and better. Aaron Good, let's get back to the last part of your review. And again, we're just scratching the surface here. There's so much going on in your very detailed analysis. The last part of your review, Empire and the Criminalization of the State, you work too with our longtime friend, Peter Dale Scott. And the term deep state really got off leash in the Trump presidency. The whole concept got twisted around and made very superficial, just about as silly as the fake news epithet. Could you help our listeners understand the serious side, the actual scholarship about what people like Peter Dale Scott mean when they talk about deep state or deep politics or deep events like the assassination of JFK or RFK. Can you unpack a little of that for our listeners? Sure. And I think that's a good thing to do after I've just finished damning Curtis with faint <laughs> praise by saying that he's, uh, he is better than, than Ken Burns. I, I like to look at his treatment of the deep state, which he doesn't really mention by name, but he gets into a neighboring area or a related area, which is the dual state. And when he started speaking about the dual state, which I didn't know that he was really going to get into because it's pretty far into the documentary that he says it, but my attention was very much focused on what he was going to say here because my 2015 article and then my dissertation also gets into the dual state and builds on dual state theory. That's how I end up trying to revise it theoretically to have a way to understand the system that we're currently living under. But the idea of a dual state comes about in the 40s, early 40s, in response to what happens to Nazi Germany. So alongside the dual, meaning two, obviously, it said alongside the normative state, which operated according to laws, you know, the Weimar Republic and these different institutions with courts and systems and all this that are explained by law, you had a prerogative state, which operated lawlessly okay, and served as the guardian of the regular normative state. The prerogative state was what we think of as the Nazi state. It was after the state was determined to be facing an existential crisis after the Reichstag fire, they passed the Enabling Act and Hitler created this state where 
on the rationalization or pretext of security and protecting the state from an existential foes, you could do anything. So this was something that was scary. And this, the book was called The Dual State, A Contribution to the Study of Dictatorship. Well, it, Curtis points out that there was something of a dual state in the United States, which consisted of the CIA and, and other institutions, which is accurate and interesting, but he bungles this because he attributes it to Morgenthau, when Morgenthau really was the person who used the term in reference to Ernst Frankel, the, the guy that wrote it about Germany. But he also says that Morgenthau was thinking that this was necessary because you had to have people believing in what America was doing and what America stood for, and that these overthrows and assassination programs and other dirty tricks were better to be kept from the, the public. But that wasn't really, to my knowledge, something Morgenthau argued. And at least in the more well-known essay that he had on the dual state, he was bemoaning the fact that the bureaucracy had been securitized in such a way as to allow the security services to basically devastate the State Department, you know, which resulted famously in all of those East Asia experts, those Asia experts being removed because of supposed communist sympathies in the wake of China falling to the communists. And so Morgenthau said this wasn't good. These guys were thugs, these security people were, and that they were really going to be damaging U.S. diplomacy. So at the very least, he should have said Morgenthau was ambivalent about this. And he doesn't. He also says Morgenthau was one of the most senior people in the State Department. When That wasn't what he's known for at all. I don't think he ever had a high official position. He worked as a consultant. But he's very famous for being the person who every international relations student will study as the exemplar of classical realism. This idea that evolves from like Thucydides, but other realists who look at the world as being anarchic and that states have to be amoral. Big role at the University of Chicago the very conservative, as you call it, right-wing brain trust. You bring it in with Strauss, you bring it in Carl Schmitt even, and the Rockefellers. A little bit about that connection in University of Chicago? So Carl Schmitt is the person that he really should have looked at if he wanted to talk about the dual state. And Carl Schmitt is somebody who he was a, a mentor of sorts to, Leo Strauss, was at the University of Chicago, and he also argued that the state needed to lie and, and carry out and do and the dirty business just to stay for power. Carl Schmidt, for our listeners that don't know, is the jurist, political theorist, and prominent Nazi whose ideas inform the legal thinking of the Third Reich, so people understand what we're saying. Yes, Carl Schmidt wrote about the lawlessness that would need to be pursued to preserve the state, and so he theorized about the exception, and he actually said that the real person, the real sovereign in a state, is the entity or person who gets to decide the exception. When there is an emergency that allows for the laws to be disregarded, that that is where real sovereignty lies. And this idea that security could be really something that provides a, a kind of sovereignty for uh, the state and a lawless sort of sovereignty is something that is very relevant to what happens in the United States after World War II. The FBI has broken many laws its political activities in the United States. The CIA breaks laws all the time as a matter of course. And these are things that are illegal. They violate the UN Charter, which has been ratified by the US, which the Supremacy Clause establishes, makes it the highest law on the land. And we accept that. So we're in a sort of permanent state of exception in a number of ways. The state operates that way. 
And this is something that I focus on a lot. So I wrote a dissertation about the lawlessness of the state. And I come to very different conclusions than, than Schmidt, who tiptoes around it and sort of acknowledges that, yes, the state is always breaking the law in different ways. And boy, what a conundrum. And leaves it at that. Well, you know, Aaron Good, we're almost out of time. And I know there's more yet to unpack, but we only have a couple minutes left. So where can we wrap up the conversation? You conclude your lengthy reviews on Curtis's documentary with a reality check of sorts. Can you wrap up the theme of your reviews? The way that he deals with Russia and China and the way he blames China for a number of things, including tricking the United States into living beyond its means by extending credit to it, is such a mischaracterization of the financial system and the way that China has developed. And he's pretty insulting to Chinese culture and to the accomplishments that they have made. And this is where he bungles it most seriously, I think, is that he mischaracterizes or refuses to acknowledge imperialism. And so he doesn't understand how, for example, Kennedy was somebody who was inimical to the interests of the people in charge of U.S. imperialism and U.S. foreign policy. And he depicts China as being more powerful, and that serves also an imperialist kind of logic. It's always necessary to have these enemies and vilify these people to continue to maintain this very inequitable system. And so the fact that he doesn't really address imperialism is, I think, the heart of the matter. I expand on this idea at the conclusion, which I wrote right at the very end after I'd already submitted the draft. And so I wrote more on imperialism, and I think that's where I tie it all together. And this is something we've got to understand because the idea, the concepts of empire and imperialism are so central to understanding the crises that we face today and why we're unable to uh, address them. So this is where Curtis does a disservice, and I try to correct that by pointing it out. And again, Aaron Good, Adam Curtis, BBC documentarian, well-known, widely respected. And uh, again, I think that's why you took some time to really take a deep dive and take a look at this this three-part review, Deep Fake Politics, Getting Adam Curtis Out of Your Head. It's a historiography of the Cold War, the clandestine state, and political economy of U.S. hegemony. Aaron Good, your work on this can be found at kennedysandking.com. Any other thing you'd like to add here as we wrap up the program or contact info or where people can learn more about your work, including your being featured in the latest Oliver Stone documentary on JFK? I'm going to be excited for people to be able to see that documentary, and I'm excited to see it myself, whether I was going to be in it or not. I also did a piece not that long ago with Covert Action Magazine. I'm going to be doing more with them in the future with Peter Dale Scott, and I would encourage people to watch Covert Action Magazine and also to check out my work on True and On, and go to Kennedy's and King where these reviews are. Jim DiEugenio runs a great site, the best site for information related to not just the Kennedy assassination, but the foreign policies of that whole era. These are where I would like to refer your listeners. And one last thing, my book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State, is coming out early next year. It's published by Skyhorse, and you can pre-order it now on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or uh, some other sites. So if people like this kind of analysis and history then they would probably enjoy the book. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Project Censored show, Aaron Good. We'll have you back on hopefully in the fall, and we'll talk a little bit more about the documentary that we're not able to see. Oliver Stone has been pretty much blacklisted here in the U.S., so I'm sure we'll get to talk about that as well. Thanks for joining us, Aaron Good. 
Yeah, thank you very much, Mickey. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010 by myself and Peter Phillips. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored Show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work or find any of our previous archive programs, go to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your cell phone's podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback about our work at projectcensored.org. And last but not least, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay well. We'll see you next time. Think about crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, skies, and other guys, democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies looking ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars, fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for why taxing all the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons, build the capacity, citizens, and the ties for the master thief. Combine, conquer, steal the masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out to reach all potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that love, we the brothers and our sisters.